0: We're going to be in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 15. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk o- along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your he- hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it is a a great joy to be opening God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Before we dive in, just for my sake, would would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and we do ask that you would speak to us this morning. Father, we ask that you would fill this place, that you would be among us, and that you would use our time and your word to conform us to the image of your son. And Father, I confess my own need for you, that you would speak through me, that you would take these meditations, these words of my mouth, and that you would, you would empower them, Father, that you would use them to bring glory to your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you noticed that every single day seems to be a holiday now? Like, like there's Polar Plunge Day, or Hot Sauce Day, or Eat Vanilla Ice Cream Day. Everything is a holiday. And so I think we should create a new holiday, which would be on this past Thursday. We will call it National Break Your New Year's Resolution Day. Because statistically, that's when most people will end up giving up on their New Year's resolution. And, and if you attend a gym, you've probably already seen this playing out. Uh, At the beginning of the year, Planet Fitness or the Y is just jam-packed with new people clogging up the machines you'd like to use. But now, it's just the faithful few. And if your gym's not like that, just hold on another week or two. By February 1st, they'll all be gone. And what that reveals to us is that we are really good at suspending our habits. We're not necessarily good at changing them. I think this morning might actually be a great case study of that. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are so glad you're here, this doesn't apply to you. But if you are a regular attender and you receive the Friday email, you should have noticed that that we asked you to sit in a different seat than you typically do. So just show of hands, how many of you are in a seat that is farther than three seats from where you typically sit? Okay, give yourself a round of applause, good job. That's very difficult to do. follow-up question. How many of you are going back to your normal seats next week? (laughs) We're really good at suspending our habits, especially when we're asked to do it, or or, or if it's time-stamped, or it's beneficial to us. But actually changing those habits, that's really difficult. And yet change is the exact thing we're called to do. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're commanded to put off the old way of living and to put on the new. That's transformation language. And that, that, that's difficult for us. That's a, that's a gap in our lives. And this morning, we are continuing our series called Mind the Gap. We are exploring how, as a church, we can bridge where we are with where God is calling us to be. Uh, We're we're interested in in pursuing God's calling on our lives to be his witnesses and ambassadors. And we have to acknowledge that there are things in our lives that that prevent that from happening. We're calling those things gaps. This morning, I want us to focus in on the gap that most influences our habits, our rhythms of life. And that is the love gap. See, love has a profound impact on the things that we do. It's the driving force behind our habits, our rhythms of life. And you know, a few places in scripture make this case as clearly as Deuteronomy six. And so if you aren't already, turn your attention with me to Deuteronomy chapter six and we're gonna look at verses four through 15. And, and from our text, I want us to make three movements and you can kind of imagine it like, uh, like a reality dating show. So, so the first movement is, is the setup or the situation. Second movement is the suitors. And the third movement is the selection. Okay. Now, this passage we're looking at this morning is a rather important one, and not just for Christians. It's also significant for those who follow Judaism. They call it the Shema, which simply means to hear. So they took the first word of the sentence, and that's what they named it. It's not the most creative use of branding, But it is one of the most creative rhetorical pieces in Scripture when you consider it within the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is uh, really just a long speech that Moses gives at the end of his life. Uh, After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the Israelites are finally ready to go into the promised land. But before they do, Moses reminds them of their history and of the covenant they made with the Lord at Mount Sinai. And part of that covenant included 613 commands that they were to obey. That is a lot of commands to remember. And so God graciously distilled them down into what we call the Ten Commandments, which is what Moses reviews with them in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But then he does something very cool in chapter 6. He takes those Ten Commandments and he distills them into one. And so the Shema is a summary of the summary, and this is what they are, are to hear and, and to remember in verse 4, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now if you're following along in your text, you should see this uh, footnote that says there's a lot of different ways that this phrase can be translated. And that's because Hebrew is an economical language. Their words have a, a variety of uh, meanings attached to them. That being said, there's really only two camps that you can have with this passage. On one side of the coin, you have that the Lord is one, referring to his exclusivity, which was uh, was quite the claim for the ancient Near East because they saw all of their gods as being territorial. That you had the house god, the fish god, the rain god, the locust god, lots of gods. And they all had their different uh, portions and territories. What this statement is asserting is that there is only one God and that He's over all things. So it's one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin is that the Lord our God is one, referring to His unity, that that He is of one mind. He's not oscillating from day to day what He wants to see happen, He's not ambivalent. From the beginning of time, He has been pursuing His purposes for His creation. And so, which is it? Which side of the coin? is Moses talking about here? Yes. It's both sides of the coin. Two sides, one coin. Same thing here. Both of these together give us a fuller picture of the God that the Israelites are to remember because they have experienced both of these sides. Uh, that's what Moses is reminding them of in verses 10 through 12 when he tells them that when they come into the land that, they, that was sworn to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with its great and good cities that they didn't build and houses full of all things that they didn't fill and cisterns that they didn't dig and vineyards and olive trees they didn't plant. And when they eat and are full, they should take care lest they forget the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, they've experienced both of these signs of God. They've seen that the Lord is one. They've seen his power on display as he just cleans house of the Egyptian gods without breaking a sweat. And as they've journeyed through the wilderness with all of their grumbling and complaining, they have seen that the Lord is one. When he had every opportunity to just wipe them out and start over, he remained faithful to them and now is bringing them into the promised land. This is the God that Israel needs to hear about and remember. Remember how I said that the Hebrew language is economical? Shema is one of those words. It not just means hear, but it also means to obey. In fact, in Scripture, if you don't obey, you haven't heard. And so Israel, in hearing about the God who is one, ought to do something about that, which is what verse 5 points us to. They are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all of their might. Or with all of their might. Now, love is something that's been rather diluted by uh, our culture. It, it can be used for about anything, and it means very little. And so what, what is Moses talking about here when he commands them to love God? Well, in part, it has to be that they obey his commands, just giving the context of what he's talking about. But th- this is not a, a fearful, obligatory obedience. Uh, the way Moses sees this playing out is they, they shema, they hear and remember the greatness, the oneness of God, and that motivates, it drives their obedience, which is why it encompasses the whole person, heart, soul, and might. And the Apostle Paul actually gives us a similar exhortation in the book of Romans. After surveying God's great mercy in the first 11 chapters, he says that our reasonable response is to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him, to give all that we are to Him, And it's when we love God in this way that we will be in pursuit of his calling, that we'll be walking in step with his commands for us. But here's the thing. Yahweh is not the only suitor. There are others who are vying for Israel's, and frankly, our affection Moses makes mention of them in verse 14, where he warns them that they should not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. So there is this competition between God and the other gods. And just so that doesn't get confusing, we're going to call the other gods idols, which might seem out of place in the 21st century. You might be thinking, well, We are all enlightened people here. We're not primitive cavemen and women, and so we don't need shiny gold gods anymore. But an idol is not a golden statue. It is a a God substitute. It's the thing that you look to in life other than God for happiness, for meaning, and for purpose in life. It's when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, which means that anything can be an idol. Uh, your, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your job, your bank account, your 401K, your physical attractiveness, your academic uh, skills, your athletic prowess, your uh, likes on Instagram, your uh, political ideologies, anything can be an idol when we ask it to provide us significance, security, And success. And so we see these things and we say, huh, maybe this can provide for me the happily ever after that I'm hoping for. And so we will either choose between God or these other suitors. Maybe you're wondering, well, why do I need to choose? Uh, I'm a strong independent individual. Why do I need a God? It's Because of the way that you are wired. See, we are this this fascinating mixture of power and powerlessness. We are incredibly powerful because we are created in the image of God, which means that we're able to think and reason and emote and, and create and shape. But because of that power, we're also aware of our powerlessness, that there are things in this life that we are unable to control. And that's where idolatry comes in. Probably the best definition of idolatry I've come across was given by a guy named Andy Crouch, and this is how he defines it. Idolatry is the belief that we have found something that will bring a stubborn and unpredictable part of life under our control. See, idols are like the bits that we shove in the crazy horse that is our lives in an attempt to control it we need something to do that. It will either be God or God's substitutes. And that's why we pursue why we love our idols. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, Caleb, I love God. And I'm not saying that you don't. In fact, we love a lot of really good things, don't we? But we have to acknowledge that there is a like a hierarchy of affections in our heart. It, it, it's kind of like uh, a March Madness tournament. Uh, even if you're not a big March Madness fan, you might get swept up a little bit into like filling out your bracket and stuff like that, and it's exciting stuff. Because even though they slot in who's, who's had the better regular season record in the higher seeds and the, the, the Cinderella stories at the lower seeds, it's exciting because anything can happen, right? The 16th seed can overthrow a first seed and wreck all of our brackets. The tournament for our heart's affection is very similar in that our different loves get slotted in their seeds. The one difference is that there are no upsets. The higher-ranked seed always beats the lower one. And so the question is not, do we love God? The question is, Is he the number one seed? Is he the top affection for our hearts? And here's how you can figure out where God is on your bracket. Look at the matchups that he keeps losing. Look at your actions. Where are they consistently inconsistent with what God calls you and commands you to do? That's because he is losing a matchup against something else, that is providing for you significance, security, and success. It's true of my life, it's true of all of our lives. And what that reveals to us is that our actions are being driven by something else is being driven by the thing that our hearts love most. And so our, our, our problem, the reason this gap arises in our lives it, it is not because of a lack of knowledge. It's not even because of a lack of determination. It's because we have a love problem. The thing that we delight in and worship is the thing that, that shapes and drives our actions. And the reason this is a problem for us is that these other suitors are not good for us. Uh, Just like, like pursuing the one ring was horrific for Gollum, dehumanizing and eventually destroying him, so too when we pursue these idols, these other suitors, they might initially serve us well, but eventually they will dehumanize and destroy us. They will ask more and more of us while giving less and less until they demand everything and they give us nothing. And so in one sense, the selection process should be quite obvious, right? God is good for us. These other things are toxic for us. Therefore, we should always choose God. And yet our tendency is to keep selecting the other suitors. They are kind of like bad boys. We know we shouldn't, but our hearts just can't seem to help it. I remember seeing this play out uh, in college rather vividly. Um, I knew this girl who got out of a rather unhealthy relationship uh, and then started dating a guy on my floor. And, and, and he, was, he was good to her, he cared for her well. But once they went their separate ways for summer break, she dumped him within a couple of weeks. And we found out later it was because she ran into her ex. And she realized that, that her heart was still pining after him. It didn't matter that, that he was bad for her. It didn't matter that she had found someone that would uh, treat her better, care for her better. The heart wanted what the heart wanted. See, the heart trumps logic every single time. And, and what that means is that we can't just reason our way into choosing a new affection. We can't just Use sheer willpower and determination. Something else has to happen. Imagine uh, that that you are a scientist and you have the latest and greatest technology in front of you, and you have been tasked to remove all of the air out of a glass beaker. How do you do it? Well, you could use a vacuum, right? You could suck all of the air out. That would work. But what happens when you turn the vacuum off? all the air goes rushing back in. Or or, or maybe you can figure out a different way to get all the air out and you can lock the beaker in an airtight container. That'll keep the air out. But what happens if the seal is broken? What happens when there's the slightest crack? The air goes rushing right back in. It's rather difficult to keep air out of a glass beaker, but there's one very simple way to do it just pour some water in it. That was a very important point. Make sure you caught that. <laughs> that if you fill the glass with water, it will expel every single ounce of air out of the glass. And our hearts are the same way. We we can't just push an idol out of our heart. We can't just stop doing something. Because our hearts will either, it will bring it right back in, or it will go find something else. Instead, we have to—do you guys want me to switch to this mic? Okay. Cool, cool. Good? Um, We can't just um, stop an idol. We have to fill our hearts with a new and greater affection. And then, and only then, will it expel the idols from our lives. Thankfully, God has always had that type of love for us. The problem for us is that like Adam and Eve, we refuse to believe that it's genuine. That we believe that God does not uh, love us or he won't care for us the same way that, that all of these other suitors will. And, and in a weird sense, that's absolutely true. God's care and love for you is on a whole different plane than the other suitors, which is uh, John's point uh, in First John chapter 4. Uh, I'm turning over to First John chapter 4, jumping in in verse 8. And John is talking about God's love for us, and he tells us that, that God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what is one way to absolutely convince someone that you love and care for them? You take a bullet for them, right? Like, it is 100% effective in movies. It convinces the girl that you're the one. And that's what Jesus does for us on a cosmic scale. See, there is a gun aimed at each one of us. Let's just say it's a cannon, actually. It's called God's wrath. And it's aimed at each one of us because of our sin, because we have rebelled against him. We have gone after other gods and done horrible things as a result. But then in comes Jesus. Jesus, we're told in this text, is the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word. It doesn't show up in your everyday vocabulary very often. And it simply means to turn away God's wrath. And so Jesus steps in, pulls the cannon away from us, aims it at himself, and yells, fire! He absorbs all of God's righteous wrath and fury that was meant for you. That is how God loves you you see how it's a different playing field? All the other suitors say that you need to sacrifice X, Y, and Z, and maybe, just maybe, I'll give you what you're hoping for. Jesus says, I sacrifice myself for you so that you might have the life you were meant to have. God's love for you blows all others out of the water. And when we behold that, when we grasp it, when we see it, it sweeps us off our feet. It, it, it quickens our heart. It, it reorients our affections. It, it effectively expels the idols from our lives. And so the question for us then is how do we go about selecting Jesus on a daily basis? How do we keep the glass full of water so that air doesn't go rushing back in? And there, there are two things that work together here. The first is repentance, that we need to repent of our idols, of these other suitors. We have to acknowledge that, that, that they are ineffective compared to God. Yes, they're good things, but they are not God things. And we also have to confess how harmful they are to us. You have to call that out and realize it. And that, that helps us push the idols to the side. But then we also have to make sure that Jesus is firmly placed on the throne of our heart. And that calls for us to rejoice in him. Typically we think of rejoicing as what we're about to do in a few minutes, to sing songs of praise. And that, that is part of it. But to rejoice in something means that you delight in it that you celebrate it, that that you are enthralled with it. And we have to view Jesus in that way. Then and only then are our hearts filled uh, to the brim. And this has to be something more than just what we do in our quiet times. That's that's Moses' point in verses seven through nine, where he's saying it needs to be a lifestyle. Loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and might is not just something you do for 15 minutes in the morning. It's something that, that encapsulates all of your life. It's something that you talk about with your children. It's something that you are dwelling on when you rise and when you go to sleep. We don't physically have to, to wear them on our head as they do in verse 8, but, but it needs to be so a part of us that it travels with us wherever we go. We need to make it a priority to behold the greatness and love of Jesus. And that is a a, a community pursuit. That's why at the end of verse 9, he says that you need to write it on your gates, because it is a community pursuit of loving the Lord. See, we can only together follow Christ. It's only when we are encouraging one another to behold Jesus' love and greatness for us that we are able to pursue the calling that he has on our life. So here's the point. Our habits, our rhythms of life, they can be transformed. We actually can become the witnesses that God is calling us to be. But that will only happen if our hearts Are fueled by his great love for us. And so brothers and sisters, let's try change for a change. And that starts when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, when we look full in his wonderful gaze. Then and only then will the things of earth, all these other suitors, become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me, Father? We thank you, and you are a great and awesome God. That there is none like you. That you are one, and you alone are worthy of our love and affection. Father, would you forgive us because our hearts are so prone to wander, and we feel that this morning. We're so prone to leave the God we love. Would you forgive us of that, Father? Would you help us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to see how ineffective and and destructive these other suitors, these idols, are in our life? And would you also help us to view your great demonstration of love in Jesus, that you would turn away your wrath onto yourself for us? Father, even now as we sing, would you melt our hearts? Would you, would you enthrall us with your grace? And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.